The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, Standing Against Compromise, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The angel writing to the church at Pergamos. And so the third now, we're looking at the third of our Lord's seven letters uh, to the churches. And this letter is addressed to the church at Pergamos, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In his letters to the churches... The Lord refers to himself as the author of this letter, and he refers to himself in terms drawn from John's vision that we looked at together in chapter 1, as the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands, hair white as wool, eyes like a flame of fire, feet of fine brass, a voice like the torrent of many waters, seven stars in his right hand, his scepter hand, and a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. From the Lord's address now to the church at Pergamos in verse 12, it's with this sharp two-edged sword of his word that he now speaks to the church at Pergamos. The picture elicited by this language from chapter 1 and the description of the Lord there, this picture elicited is not one of comfort or encouragement for this church at Pergamos, although his commendation is very encouraging and may be comforting to the believers there, uh, the Lord now addresses them with the two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. The Lord Christ threatens to come quickly and to fight against them, to fight against heretics, compromisers in the church at Pergamos with the sword of his mouth. In other words, the picture, the imagery now elicits uh, an urgent threat, if you will, of impending judgment. And Pergamos has been found committing adultery with the world. Ephesus was intolerant of heretics, but lacked love. Pergamos tolerated heretics in the name of love. Smyrna was a picture of the church persecuted in the world. Pergamos is a picture of the world in the church. Once again, we find the church in the midst of hostile and intolerant territory. And I think one of the lessons that we draw from the church at Pergamos is that although the church is highly persecuted, found in hostile territory, the church itself cannot compromise with the world, cannot compromise with heresy, cannot compromise with error. In the face of persecution, even in the face of dire circumstances, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must stand strong. The church at Smyrna was found to be a true synagogue, if you will, a gathering place of God's people, persecuted by those who were of the synagogue of Satan. The church at Pergamos is dwelling where Satan's throne is. Where in Smyrna, we saw many who were murdered as martyrs of the early church for refusing to confess Caesar as Lord, including Polycarp, Pergamos had built a temple to the Roman Emperor Augustus, the city was considered to be the Neacharos, the temple warden for Caesar worship. Among the many other pagan temples, pagan cults in Pergamos, the city was also known for being home to the serpent god Asclepius, the god of healing. The emblem of the serpent had become the emblem of the city. We see the same emblem representing medical hospitals, doctors today uh, around the world. It's the serpent coiled along a staff. The rod or the staff of Asclepius, the pagan god of healing. That emblem, the emblem of Asclepius, combined with a throne-like altar to Zeus, a throne-like altar that was said to be 120 feet wide, 60 feet high, this huge throne to Zeus on a hill behind the city, and you have fertile ground on which John claims here that the city was the very throne room of Satan. The Roman government had established a proconsul in Pergamos, and the council there in Pergamos wielded the power of the sword. The sword given them by God as his diaconus, as it were, God's minister to us for good, Romans 13, uh, the sword was meant to uphold the sword of his truth, but rather, and use that sword, derived authority to execute wrath on those who practice evil, to uphold good, those in Pergamos have rejected him And use the power, rather, of the sword to attack his people. Unlike the synagogue in Smyrna, 
the proconsul could sentence Christians to death and often did. To these pagans, the gods were savior and Caesar was lord. And that was the end of the story. That left Christianity, Christians in general, in direct opposition to everything that those in Pergamos stood for. The Roman government, the cult of the emperor, the cult of the gods, standing in direct opposition to Christians in Pergamos. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, it will be the sword of his mouth that Christ, with that sword, will strike the nations, treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so with the sword of his mouth, in eliciting an image or a picture of judgment, the Lord begins his address to the church, uh, addressing this church in Pergamos, but he begins by acknowledging their very difficult circumstances. Look at verse 13. In addressing their circumstances, verse 13, the Lord says, I know your works. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The omniscient Christ knows. He knows their circumstances. He knows their weakness. He knows their frailty. He knows that they are but dust. And he knows that they dwell as in the light, uh, dwell as a light in the midst of darkness. He knows that they dwell as sheep among the wolves. He knows. And where the church is found in the very midst of an enraged enemy, there will be persecution. The Lord knows. And the Lord has said, right, it is appointed to us not only to believe, but also suffer for his name. The Lord knows our circumstances. He knows our, the details of church life, as it were. He knows what they face in Pergamos. He knows what we face in Orlando. He knows. He knows. And where the church, wherever the church is found in the midst of hostile territory, there will be, will be persecution. Why? Because Christians are witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians shine as lights in a dark place. There will be persecution. Let me give you an example of this. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And let's see how this is laid out by way of example, by way of illustration here in Revelation chapter 12. We'll often return here because of this, uh, such a good synopsis that chapter 12 provides, an eschatological synopsis. We'll refer to it now with respect to the church, the persecuted church in the midst of the world. Look at verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. That should alert us to symbolism, right? A sign is something that signifies or points to, and in this case, points to spiritual reality. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. We've looked at this imagery before from chapter 12 and have deduced... Uh, that the woman represents Israel, right? The people of God, Israel. And through Israel, the woman, uh, the Lord is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. Being with child, verse two, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Then verse three, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, that dragon later identified with Satan, Having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. As soon as the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Even Herod, seeking the death of all the children under the age of two, attempting to kill the coming Messiah, the coming king, right? So she bore then, verse 5, a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Before he was uh, murdered, as it, will, as, you, as it were, by Satan, he's ascended, he's ascended via the crucifixion, ascended to God and to his throne. Verse six, then upon the Lord's ascension, keep the chronology straight here, the woman fled into the wilderness. Where is that? It's the wilderness of this world. The, the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So upon the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, Stephen is martyred in the temple. And what happens upon Stephen's martyrdom in the temple? The great diaspora. The great diaspora of, of Jewish Christians fleeing Jerusalem into the wilderness of the world. And what happened when those Jewish Christians went everywhere? away from Jerusalem and Judea. They went everywhere, Acts says, uh, preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. So what do we have here? We have true Israel fleeing into the wilderness, into the wilderness of this world. And what is this period referring to? It's referring to the first half of Daniel's final week of world history. 
1,260 days, a reference to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to get there and talk about that at a later time. Now, verse 7. At that time, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. This is a look behind the curtain, if you will, into a battle that the Lord uh, reveals to us through Scripture. But in this battle, verse 8, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. In Luke chapter 10, the Lord sends out the 70 to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. And he says to them, heal the sick there, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In the healing of the sick and the casting out of demons, the kingdom of God has come. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Right? It's an example of Jesus Christ in victory, uh, dethroning, as it were, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, casting him to earth. Behold, he says, verse 19, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. In verse 11, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's a way that Christians overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, isn't it? by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That is the testimony of the church, amen? Therefore, verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now, what does he do? When the dragon, verse 13, saw that he'd been cast to the earth, He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child and, verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's the story of this age. Uh, That's the account, the record, if you will, of the church in the midst of tribulation. Where the true church is found in the midst of an enraged enemy, there will be persecution. Why is that? Jesus says, I know your works, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, and I know where you dwell. You dwell, he tells the church at Pergamos, you dwell where Satan's throne is. You dwell in the wilderness of this world. You dwell in territory under the rule of the prince of the power of the air. And yet he says to them, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. In the midst of her circumstances, in the very heart of hostile territory, the church at Pergamos held fast and did not deny the name. The church at Pergamos still has her lampstand. Do you see? In the midst of very difficult circumstances, in the midst of hostile territory, brothers and sisters, we have to be prepared to do the same, right? We are a church in the midst of hostile territory. We have an enraged enemy. He prowls like a lion seeking whom he may devour. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has to stand fast in the midst of that persecution in the midst of that hostile territory, stand fast for the Lord, holding fast to his name, not denying his faith. Those are our orders, if you will, right? We're charged with that. The church cannot compromise in the face of adversity. The church cannot compromise in the face of persecution. Our Lord knew what it meant to be tempted by Satan, didn't he? Listen, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, listen, The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The Lord knew what it meant to be tempted by Satan. The Lord knew what it meant to be tempted in all ways as we are, yet the Lord was without sin. Before we were ever called to do so, The Lord left us an example that we should follow in his steps. 
He held fast. He did not deny the faith. He calls us in this world to do the same. It's why we call the church often the church militant, right? The church militant. It's because it's a church at war. We are at war. And the, the, the deception of our enemy is such that often the church doesn't see herself as the church at war. Often the church may, especially in our country, uh, see herself as the church at her leisure, <laughs> Uh, the church at her comfort. Brothers and sisters, we are anything but the church at leisure. Uh, this is the church at war. And remember, when we speak about the church, we're not speaking about some you know, nebulous, ethereal thing. right? We're speaking of individuals that make up his body. You personally are the church. I personally am the church. right? We are members of his body individually and members of his body collectively, corporately. And you and I personally, and you and I corporately, collectively, must not compromise in the face of temptation, cannot compromise in the face of adversity, in the face of persecution. We have to hold fast his name. We must not deny his faith. And we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, right? In all points as we are tempted, yet without sin. So we're to go, to go to him boldly. We have a great high priest. We can go before the throne room, before the throne of grace in our time of need and find there for ourselves grace and mercy. 2 Timothy 2 records a hymn in the early church. Uh, and the hymn goes like this. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Does it sound like Romans 6 from this morning? If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. However, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's our charge. We must remain faithful. We cannot deny the Lord who bought us. We must remain steadfast in the midst of adversity. We have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ who's gone before us, but we also have the testimony of a great cloud of witnesses, don't we? Like Polycarp and Smyrna. Pergamus had just such an example who lived and served among them. His name was Antipas. Antipas. The the name literally means against all. against all, Antipas, against all. He was a faithful martyr. Antipas was killed among them. He was killed in their presence, as it were, in the place where Satan dwells. By God's grace, Antipas lived up to his name, didn't he? Lived up to his name to the point of death, against all, against all compromise, against all compromise with this world, In the face of adversity, in the face of persecution, Antipas did not deny his name, did not deny his faith to the point of death. I love the way the Lord refers to him. He is my faithful witness, held fast to my name. He did not deny my faith. There's a personal quality to that, isn't there? He is my faithful witness. I love that. I want to be his faithful witness. You want to be his, don't you? His faithful witness. Well, there is a synagogue of true Israel, an ecclesia of God's people in Pergamos. And there is a synagogue of true Israel, an ecclesia of God's people in Orlando. Right? That is called by the Lord Jesus Christ. They are called to be his faithful witness. They are called to hold fast his name, called to take a stand for his faith. They're to stand where he himself has stood. They're to stand as his martyrs, his witnesses, in the very heart of enemy territory and to oppose darkness with the light of the gospel. He knows our works. He knows where we dwell. We must simply hold fast to him. I'm often struck when I, when I think about texts like this and what the Lord calls us to do and the ease with which we can retreat from doing that which the Lord has called us to do. It is so easy, easy here to retreat into comfort, right? To treat, retreat to our leisure. Where the Lord calls us to stand in opposition to error, to stand in opposition to this world, to shine as a light in the darkness, to be 
witnesses to him, it is so simple, just so easy, just to keep your mouth shut, isn't it? Or to sit on the couch back in the tent rather than joining the army on the front lines, right? He knows our works. He knows where we dwell. He knows we live in a compromising age. He knows we are tempted on all sides by a deceptive and insidious enemy that would lull us to sleep, the slumber of a a carbon monoxide death, right? Where we sleep first and then die. He knows we must hold fast to him and we must be vigilant to cut out compromise where we find it. That doesn't mean merely that we stand opposed to this world without, but it also means standing opposed to the world where we find it creeping in and crawling in within. Under the severe weight of persecution from without, Pergamus had begun compromising with error, compromising with worldliness and with immorality from within the church. We've heard it said before that when Satan attacked the church from the outside and couldn't bring down the Lord's church by attacking it from the outside, what did Satan begin to do? He changed his strategy, infiltrated the church and began to eat away at it from the inside. Under the severe weight of persecution from without, Pergamus had begun to, begun to compromise with error from within. One commentator compared the church to a ship at sea. A ship is meant, it's built to traverse even the most difficult waters. But once water begins to leak into the ship, it's only a matter of time before the boat sinks, right? A ship is meant to be in the water, but water is not meant to be in the ship. The church is meant to be in the world, but the world is not meant to be in the church, The hull of Pergamos has been breached and she is now taking on water. Look at verse 14. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, the rebuke, again, is given to the church as a whole, as a whole, and that whole, the church in its entirety, referenced by the word you in the singular, delivered by the agency of an angel, a messenger of God himself, but that's meant for each of the members of the church at Pergamos to take seriously and to take to heart. And the great physician here is diagnosed, in the church at Pergamos, he's diagnosed a deadly cancer, and that is the deadly cancer of compromise, a deadly cancer of compromise. There's a trip coming up in May uh, to our church plant in New York. Uh, what was striking to me when I first went up there and was driving for the first time through the Hudson Valley uh, to get to the church, uh, there were a number of Reformed churches in the area. Many, many Reformed churches in the Hudson Valley on your way to Christ the King Reformed Baptist Church. And we're planting a Reformed Baptist Church in the midst of all these other Reformed churches and the only way to consider them now as, is as formerly reformed uh, and now entirely apostate. These are churches who have a heritage rooted in the Reformation. They have a heritage that goes back to the very roots that we claim. Churches that adopted the Belgic Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. They expelled Arminians as heretics. Dutch reformers, right? Expelled Arminians as heretics, which they are. And now, these so-called Reformed churches in the Hudson Valley have ordained lesbians as pastors. They have abandoned the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. What happened? Not succumbing to persecution from without. You can't be persecuted when you don't open your mouth. But certainly succumbing to error and compromise from within. Every single mainline denomination has capitulated to compromise. Do you realize that? Every single one of them. Today, and those denominations made up of individual churches, those individual churches compromising in order order to vote the denomination and to compromise itself. And today, countless numbers of churches themselves, once strong, once orthodox, once faithful, holding fast to his name, holding fast to his faith, are holding fast no longer. And notice, it's, it's compromise that begins with doctrine, as we'll see, and then extends to 
conduct. And in Pergamos, this error, this doctrinal error, compromise, is very old. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Verse 14. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. He's writing to this church in the first century, late first century, of a doctrine, of an error that was recorded, accounted for back in Numbers 24, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The first departure from the truth at the church in Pergamos has to do with the doctrine of Balaam. We should recognize these errors. Now, if you remember, let's recognize them together. If you remember the account, Numbers chapter 22, Numbers chapter 24, Balak, who's the king of the Moabites, hired Balaam, that prophet for prophet. He hired Balaam to come and curse Israel that he might defeat them in battle. Balaam's only too happy to do that because Balaam thinks he's going to get rich on the deal. Balaam really wanted to do it. Balak had offered him a large sum of money, but Balaam couldn't do it. Restrained by the Lord, Balaam rather blessed Israel three times rather than cursing them, if you remember the story. With Balaam, he's going to get his by hook or by crook. And so he counsels Balak and the women of Midian to seduce Israel to sit against the Lord. That's how he gets them. If you can't kill them from without, kill them from within. Do you see? Destroy them from within. This was the error of Balaam. This is the very compromise that the Lord is addressing in the church at Pergamos. And we see it on the pages of Scripture, Numbers 22 to Numbers 24, right? This is the error of Balaam. If you can't curse them from without and destroy them from without, destroy them in battle, then destroy them from within. Eat at them from within. Numbers 31, Israel, under the direction of the Lord, goes to war with Midian, and Israel defeats them. The Midianites were under the ban. And so every one of them should have been killed, according to the ban. But the Israelites leave the women alive. And Moses said to them, listen, verse 15. Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Moses calling them to remembrance. Do you not remember what happened? You've left these women alive. And if you remember the account, 24,000 Israelites died in the plague before Phineas, right, the champion, runs in with his, into the tent with his spear and takes care of business. Right? Moses is saying 24,000 Israelites dead. Do you not learn from your lessons? Are you going to allow this compromise concerning the severity of those consequences? Oftentimes we forget the consequences, don't we? We just don't think of them as being that bad. or We don't remember them as being that bad. We don't, we don't see those consequences until we go through the pain of dealing with them, dealing with the chastening, dealing with the discipline, right? Dealing with those circumstances, and then we remember and then how soon we forget before having to learn the same lesson all over again, right? We as the church must be vigilant with compromise within our camp, with sin in our camp. We must be vigilant. This hard-learned lesson would plague Israel throughout her history. It's brought up several times in the Old Testament, and again, it's brought up several times with reference to apostasy in the New Testament, Peter describes those who hate authority. He describes those as presumptuous, self-willed, who are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, particularly those who teach error. And he describes them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Turn back just a couple of books. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. And Peter mentions these. Listen to how he describes them. And the error that they introduce from within the church. Verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed. Well, you wonder what the Lord thinks of these, right? These heretics, those who sow discord among the brethren, those who hate authority, those who are self-willed, presumptuous, those who teach error among God's people. What does the Lord think of them? They are brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. I would say that's uh, an effective way to deal with discipline in the Lord's church when it comes to error, right? 
These, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Flip over and look at Jude. Look at Jude. And look there at Jude beginning in verse 8. And again, we're, we're talking about those, we're going to talk more in the, moment, for in the moment about the doctrine of Balaam, but those who seduce God's people to sin from within the church, seduce God's people to commit adultery with compromise, as it were. Jude, look at verse 8, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries, you see the same language, right? Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. In other words, they have gone to hell. They've gone to hell in their error. They've gone to hell in their compromise. They've gone to hell teaching the Lord's people error and compromise. Do you see? What was it that these first century Balaamites, what was it that they put in front of the church at Pergamos to seduce many of them away from following the Lord? To tempt God's people. What did they put in front of them to seduce them? They're willing to do it. Right? They're willing to do it. If it will line their pockets, if it will pad their resume, if it will feed their ego, they'll do it. You're, you think, you remember those three things? Right? If it will line their pockets, if it will pad their resume, if it will feed their ego. That's all it takes. All it takes. They'll do it. What do they do? Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. These sins. Paul refers to eating meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He refers to it there as being meaningless. Why is that? Because we know that an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. And it's meaningless there except in matters dealing with conscience, isn't it? Dealing with conscience, it's not meaningless any longer. We're to set aside our liberty, right? However, here, what's being referenced here, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, is a matter tied directly to idolatry. Not merely a matter of, matter of Christian liberty. This matter is tied directly to idolatry. Not merely eating, but eating in a way that is tied to the culture's pagan idolatry. Corinth had problems with that also. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells the church at Corinth not to have fellowship with pagan Gentiles in their sacrifices to demons. What were the pagan Gentiles doing in their eating of meat offered idols? They were sacrificing to demons. And the church at Corinth wasn't to participate in their sacrifices. Ultimately, what the Lord is addressing here in the church at Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 is compromise. A compromise with the pagan idolatry of the culture around them. Compromise with idolatry is considered adultery or fornication. Often it's, it's not only connected spiritually with cultic sexual immorality, but it's connected physically with cultic immorality in the form of cultic prostitutes. And many of those pagan idolatrous religions supported or practiced cultic prostitution. An example here. One example of the church at Pergamos, their circumstances. It's thought 
recorded that many in the church at Pergamos compromised in feasts that were sponsored by the trade guilds. You remember the difficulty of the persecuted church in the midst of the Roman Empire, in particular in this area of Asia Minor where the Roman emperor uh, cult worship was very predominant. Many of the guilds were supported by the Roman government and many of the guilds practiced cultic emperor worship. And many of the guilds held feasts, they held festivals. And in order to support your livelihood, in order to have a livelihood, you'd have participated in those guilds and would certainly have been called to participate in those feasts. There would have been tremendous pressure, tremendous temptation to participate in those festivals, in those feasts. To to refuse to do that would have been to refuse a living wage, essentially. Would have been meant losing your place in the guild or losing your livelihood. These feasts, the festivals were often supported by the government, sanctioned by the state itself, and they involved celebration of emperor worship, cultic worship of the Roman pantheon of gods. And although cult prostitution would have been rampant, even participation in the festival would have been considered spiritual adultery. Those in the church at Pergamos may have simply viewed these festivals as social or work obligations, right? I can go as long as I don't really believe in that stuff. Listen, I don't believe in that stuff, but I'll go. I'm going to go because I have to go because it's a work thing. I got to go to work, right? I remember uh, years and years ago, uh, I think at that time I was still unconverted, but a company that I worked for uh, decided to have their national convention in Vegas. And um, can't think of a more deplorable, wicked place in our country, (laughs) I think, than that. Um, It could possibly be described in in terms uh, like Pergamos. It's where Satan's throne is. (laughs) And, uh, but the, the, the justifications, the, the gymnastics that I went through in my mind to justify going to a wicked, deplorable place like that um, because it was, I needed to go for work. It was part of our convention. We had to do it. Right? Had to, you know. The temptation in Pergamos would, uh, would have been stout. It would have been difficult. There were those in Pergamos that taught that close association in that way with paganism was entirely fine. They would have taught in the way that Balaam put a stumbling block before the children of Israel that it was fine to participate in that kind of pagan um, experience or that kind of pagan worship. And you can find all kinds of justifications for why it didn't matter to you. It was thus or in this manner, verse 15, that they also had among them those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. In other words, the, the Nicolaitans... And these heretics, the Balaamites, were essentially teaching the very same thing. Balaamites could have been considered a wing, if you will, a department of the Nicolaitans. We've discussed this group previously. Whoever they were, they share this view with the Balaamites. They're cut from the same cloth. I think that this very admonition, for example, these cultural, cultic feasts and festivals that the church members in Pergamos would have felt significant temptation to go to or to participate in is the context of Peter and John's own admonition to the Gentiles or the Gentile churches at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you remember there, we've often thought about uh, exactly what James is referring to when James says in verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, those Gentiles in the very region that we're talking about, that we shouldn't trouble them, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. In other words, not that idols are anything, but they were tempted through persecution to compromise with idolatry by participating in these feasts and festivals where actual idolatry was taking place. You see, they're not just merely eating meat that was once before offered to idols. They're participating in the cultic worship of eating the meat. Right? They're being compromised in pagan idolatry. And so James says, don't trouble them, but we write, they should abstain, listen, they should abstain from things polluted from idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and from blood. I think it's a direct reference to the ways in which Gentile churches in the Roman Empire were being tempted to compromise with these cultic feasts and festivals. 
compromise with the pagan idolatry that was rank around them. The very things involved in cultic festivals and feasts among the guilds of that day. Now, notice something interesting with me, and I want us to think about this. There were those in the church, there were those in the church that were teaching this error. There were those Balaamites in the church teaching this error. There were those in the church who were believing this error, buying into this error, and practicing this error, participating in this error. There were people in the church who were doing that. But notice, the rebuke is against the church as a whole for tolerating this error. You see there? Verse 14, you have there those among you. Verse 15, you have there those among you. What is the Lord saying? The church at Pergamos has been negligent has been sinful in their failure to deal with sin and error in their midst. The church has failed to deal with sin in their midst. They have allowed this heresy not only to find a foothold in Pergamos, but to spread throughout their ranks, defiling many. We are often prone to think of sin too lightly. We don't realize the devastation that sin can often cause until it's too late, until we see the devastation that sin causes. And then we're aghast, we're shocked by it. We're often prone to think of sin too lightly. Where we see sin, we have to trust the Lord and do with sin what we are charged by the Lord to do with sin. Right? We have to deal with sin in the way that the Lord has charged us to deal with sin. He is faithful. He is omniscient. He's omnisapient. He's, he knows. He loves his church far more than we do. He knows what's good for us, and he has commanded us. He's told us exactly what we're to do. We must be vigilant. We must be faithful. We must do it. And that's not just a church as a whole, but you and I individually as members of the church have responsibility to deal with sin in our midst. How many times, right? How many times, brothers and sisters, have we seen in our own experience as a church, sin take a foothold and then begin to spread, defiling many before a bomb goes off and three or four go apostate and drag another eight with them. How many times have we had to learn that lesson? Do you see? How many times failing or being negligent, being sometimes slow, right? Oftentimes, it's um, not that we are being negligent, slow, or failing in any way. With a clear conscience before God, we can say that. There must be factions among us so that those who are tested may be proven. Uh, Often, it's for our good, Good to humble us, good to prune us. Pruning is good for us because it brings forth much more fruit, right? Ways that we're grateful for. But we often are prone to think of sin too lightly. Don't think a matter is too serious until we see people leaving the faith and dragging others with them. The doctrinal purity of the church requires vigilance. The practical purity of the church requires vigilance. It requires steadfastness. It requires doing things that are often things we find uncomfortable to do. Requires having conversations and asking questions and digging in to circumstances and situations where it may be difficult for us to have conversations and dig in. But it is the responsibility of us, brothers and sisters, as members of the Lord's church, to do just that. Doctrinal purity, the doctrinal purity of the church requires vigilance. The practical purity of the church requires, requires vigilance. The unity of the church requires vigilance. The peace of the church requires vigilance. You've got to be willing to deal with sin. And I'll tell you what, if you're faithful dealing with sin, you're going to be persecuted. Not only from without, you're going to be per- persecuted from those who were once among you. 
The church at Pergamos has failed to deal appropriately. The church at Pergamos has failed to deal biblically with the sin in their midst. And now the church at Pergamos is about to lose their church to heretics. Do you see? That leads us to the Lord's command then. What are we to do? What are we to do? The Lord gives us two instructions. First, the Lord commands, verse 16, repent. Notice he does not tell them to move. (laughs) Move from Pergamos or else I will come to you. No, they've got to hang in there and fight. You can't just pull a (laughs) ripcord, the ejection handle. Many face difficulties in the church just that way, don't they? Right? They're sitting in a pilot seat, for example, and they pull the little ejector handle and they're bolting out of the cockpit, refusing to deal with anything. I'm out of here. It's not what the Lord tells us to do. What does the Lord tell us to do? The Lord tells us to repent. Repent. The Nicolaitans must be removed. The Balaamites must be removed. All of those who are participating in, believing in, acting, practicing that error must either repent or be removed. They were allowing those in the church that were causing Christians to stumble, like Balaam, putting a stumbling block before the children of Israel. These are putting a stumbling block before God's people in his own church at Pergamos. Those who participate in the sins of Balaam participate in the fate of Balaam. They must repent or they must be removed. Repent, in other words, First, change the way that you're thinking about these things, right? I think acknowledge that it is serious. Acknowledge that it is not a light matter. Acknowledge sin in dealing with it. Acknowledge failure in handling it biblically. And then bear fruits befitting repentance. Repent, the commander, repent, includes or encompasses fruits befitting repentance. What does that look like in the church? You have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You also have those there who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So what are they being called to do? They're being called to church discipline. Right? First and foremost, called to church discipline. That false teaching must be eradicated from the church. Oftentimes in church discipline, that requires many, 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 many individual conversations. You going to a brother or sister alone, telling him his fault between you and him alone in order to win your brother, to call him to repentance. If he fails to repent, you take two or three unbiased witnesses with you. You both, all three, go to him, calling him to repentance, right? You follow the steps, Matthew chapter 18. That false teaching must be eradicated. It's like a leaven, and if left unchecked, it will eventually be a leaven that leavens the whole lump. You have to purge out the leaven because we are a new lump. We don't want that leaven leavening the lump here. Must be purged out. They may live where Satan has his throne, but they are not to live as subjects of that kingdom. They belong to the heavenly kingdom, and they are to think, believe, and act as those who inhabit that kingdom under our king. And we have responsibility to him. The command to repent, verse 16, is an ultimatum that precedes a very sober threat. It's repent or else, do you see? Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's likely here that, if you think about it, they got the same kind of threat from the people in Pergamos, didn't they? The government, you better join us, get in line or else. You better join in with our emperor worship, toe the line or else. The guilds, you better do what we're telling you to do or else. We'll turn you into the, to the authorities. We'll turn you into the government. You'll lose everything. You'll lose possibly even your own life. Well, the Lord is the only one with the authority to make those kinds of threats, right? Those threats, don't fear the one who can kill the body, can do no more. Don't fear that one. Fear the one who can kill both body and cast soul and body into hell. The Lord is the one with the authority to make threats. His threats are not empty. And it's before our master that we stand or fall. Repent, the Lord says, or I will come to you quickly. He's not referring to his second coming. He's referring to coming to the church to fight against the word there is them. He's referring to the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans in the church. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
That's a picture. It's a picture in verse 16 of eschatological judgment. That's a picture of the Lord in eschatological judgment. Uh, destroying his enemies with the brightness of his coming, destroying them with the sword of his mouth. But he's going to come to them in the church at Pergamos to fight against them, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, in a temporal judgment in the church against those heretics. In other words, what's going on here is where the church at Pergamos has failed in its practice of discipline, has been sinful in its neglect of church discipline, Jesus Christ may see to that matter in his own providence. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. What do we see in Israel, right? What do we see in Israel? Israel fell to temptation, directly defied the command of God. And so what did God do? God intervened in Israel by sending a plague and 24,000 Israelites died. God handled him himself. And he handled it himself in his providence. You see? I think the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to the church at Pergamos, deal with this sin. Deal with these people. Deal with them biblically. Practice discipline as I've commanded you to do. And if you don't do that, if you fail, if you sinfully neglect what I've commanded you to do, I'm going to come. And I'm going to wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Lord can certainly see to it that the sin in his church is dealt with. And he can do it in a way that disciplines and chastens those who are his and their failure. And I want to leave this with you and let you make this connection. But I remember a scene very much like this in this church about 10 years ago. And that scene, those circumstances, could be described in terms that are very similar to those we see here. You see? And the connections... Christ worked in a powerful way with the sword of his mouth to purify his church and purified his church in many ways, uh, many ways that were absolute. We, we see in the wisdom, wisdom justified by our children, we see the Lord's wisdom in it, the Lord's love in it, the Lord's compassion and his goodness in it. Here at Pergamos, they guarded the gates, but they did not give attention to the enemy who crept in among them. They're rowing the boat, but they've been negligent of the water they've been taking on and their ship is sinking. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to our church. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. Change your conduct to conform to what we're being taught. Right? We hear the word of God. We need to be reminded and exhorted from the word of God, encouraged from the word of God, commanded from the word of God, and we must conform our thinking, conform our believing, conform our faith, and conform our conduct to what the word of God is teaching us. To him who overcomes, who is the one who overcomes? The one who does that. The one who repents. The one who sees his error. Acts bearing fruits befitting repentance the one who is conforming his conduct to what is being taught. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I will give you some of the hidden manna. In other words, if we refer that picture back to the Exodus wanderings of Israel, I will give you food for your wilderness journey. (laughs) I will give you nourishment for your wilderness journey. For us, that's a glorious spiritual truth. Uh, we have spiritual food, spiritual nourishment for our wilderness journey on this earth. It's manna that we need, right? It's manna that is good for us. And what spiritual nourishment is that? What is that hidden manna that the Lord gives to us, that spiritual food? Well, Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter six to pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for Passover, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Right? He who overcomes, uh, he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I will nourish you with knowledge of myself. I am the bread of life. I'll nourish you with myself. I'll give you knowledge of myself. I'll give you salvation in myself. Jesus Christ said, I am the bread. Well, he'll give us the hidden manna to eat. Glorious. He says, I'll give you a white stone. There are numerous examples given for what this could be. 
One is that a white stone was a symbol of victory. When candidates at that time, those who were running for office, political office, uh, the victors were given a white stone, and it became a symbol of victory. A jury was given a white stone in a court case in the first century. When they determined to acquit someone from a crime, determining that person to be innocent, they set down a white stone as testimony of his, of his innocent, and the one who was innocent, declared to be innocent, that one was given a white stone. You can see the connection to Christians, right? Justified by faith, given a white stone as those declared to be righteous in the sight of God. There's another fascinating reference to a white stone. And this reference to a white stone directly from the area in and around Pergamos, a white stone was considered a ticket or your entrance requirement for the festival of Asclepius, the serpent god of healing. That serpent wrapped around a staff, um, maybe the imagery of that serpent uh, was the imagery drawn upon for um, referring to Pergamus as where Satan's throne is. And the Lord may be saying here that where you are rejected by pagan worshipers in Pergamus, you cannot and would not take a white stone participating in the, the pagan idolatry of festivals and feasts given for the serpent god of Asclepius, the Lord says, you're acceptable to me. You're to join me at my feast. There is coming a feast, right? a wedding supper of the Lamb, where we will eat the supper together with him, with the Lord in eternity, in heaven. And the Lord is saying, where they rejected you, I accept you. You're acceptable with me. Very personal. And that goes hand in hand with uh, the new name. A new name. A new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Very personal communion. You may be rejected by the world, but you are mine. I think the Lord, that's what's communicated, I think, through that image of the white stone and through that new name given that no one knows except for you and the Lord who gives it to you. You may be rejected by the world, but the Lord says, you belong to me. You belong to me. Brothers and sisters, that is a glorious heritage, a glorious blessing. We have a glorious inheritance. We shouldn't taint that or corrupt that with compromise in this world. Amen? Let us remain steadfast. Let us hold fast to his name. Let us hold fast to his faith, knowing that where we are rejected in this world, we are accepted with our God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in every way accepted, not merely accepted, but accepted as sons who are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance reserved for us. So let us endure to the end and receive our inheritance to the glory of his name. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you. We uh, recognize, and I think increasingly so, in the increasing wickedness and perversity of this age, we know that our citizenship is not here, uh, but in heaven, that we are in the world, uh, but not of the world, and that, Lord, we stand opposed. And you've said that if the world hated you, uh, if it hates us, it hated you first, and that if uh, the world persecuted you, we will certainly be persecuted. In fact, you've said that all those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. And we recognize, Lord, that that persecution comes in many ways. Um, many of those in Pergamos or at Smyrna or at Ephesus at the time uh, would have certainly faced um, physical persecution, beatings, imprisonment, poverty, death. Uh, you've blessed us, Lord, uh, immeasurably by giving us a measure of peace in our day uh, to live and to serve you and to worship you. Um, but Lord, uh, even with that peace uh, come the dangers of an insidious compromise that has leached its way into uh, many professing churches today. And Lord, it's a, it's a compromise with error uh, that we don't want to have anything to do with in this church Help us, Lord, to be vigilant against it. Where we find sin in the church, help us, Lord, to faithfully deal with it as you've called us to 
according to church discipline, according to the process you've given us, according to the instruction you've given us. If we find uh, compromised practices or practice of sin in the church or doctrinal error in the church, help us, Lord, to remain vigilant against us, against it. Uh, not to be foolish in thinking that it's a light matter, uh, but to faithfully deal with that in love um, in every, every case that we see it, not allowing it to gain a foothold, not allowing it to spread. Help us to simply speak the truth in love, dealing with that faithfully as, that, as we should, trusting you uh, that you, Lord, are the one who um, controls the results and will direct our steps and will bear fruit among us. And we trust you in those things, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be, to be vigilant. Help us to take good warning from passages like this and love your people, love your church in such a way that we will work diligently in the church uh, as you've called us to. Help us to stand against error and against compromise, against evil from without. And help us, Lord, to be vigilant uh, against compromise with evil from within. And that for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for the church. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.